Well, uh, if the length of this morning text intimidates you, it also intimidates me. But uh, since it is a seamless narrative, I feel it's necessary to read the whole thing. So we'll start off with something shorter. In James chapter 2, verse 13, James says, Mercy triumphs over justice. Now maybe it's because of my military training or just who I am, but I think I lean towards justice and judgment. I mean, as I read this passage this morning, be thinking how you're feeling about Ahab and Jezebel. Think about what you might be wanting for them. And so as we look at this passage in 1 Kings chapter 21, you'll find it in the, pass in the passage printed for you in your worship guide and an outline on page 5. And so for everybody who is able, if you would, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Now Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, if it seems good to you. I will give you uh, its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for, vineyard for you. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it is written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, 
Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, <coughs> Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite and take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord's, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn up, I will utterly burn up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And for the anger of the Lord, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel sin, and of Jezebel, the Lord said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in the sackcloths and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in the, his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon this house. Father in heaven, these are words that you have had inspired by the work of your Holy Spirit. Now by the work of that same Holy Spirit, enable your servant to declare your truth in such a way as to bring you glory and to bring to us the hope of our great salvation in Christ. We trust you for what you have done and what you will do. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thought that would never happen, right? Okay, in the 1970s, Clint Eastwood uh, discovered a theme, if you would, for many movies. Uh, when there was lawlessness on the West Coast, he came up, if you would, with the Dirty Harry movie series. And what made it popular, I think, was because in that series, there was a lot of justice. I mean, in the end, the bad guys we're defeated. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I prefer justice. I like to live in a, a place where there's law and order, 
where people obey the law and you don't walk the streets in fear. Personally, for me, slogans like defund the police make me mad. No bail and no jail, they go further than that. They make me angry. And movies that I think had a really good ending are movies like Zero Dark Thirty, Twelve Strong, and Captain Phillips. If any of you have seen any of those, they all have a common theme. And the common theme is that in the end, the bad guys or evil or whatever you want to call it is defeated. So, with that note, when it comes time for me and for you to give account and to get our just desserts and to get what we deserve, will we be fine to be good guys or bad guys? Have you ever thought about that question seriously? A good guy or a bad guy? Universally, when you ask whether a person is going to heaven or not, most of the times they'll come up with self-justification. Self well, I'm better than most. They'll qualify themselves as good guys. So we want to consider this question very seriously this morning because as we look at this test that raises all those issues, I mean, right now, if we were to vote whether or not Ahab and Jezebel should get a certain penalty, I think it wouldn't be hard for the jury to come up with a guilty plea. So, having read this text, I think it's clear that our world needs a special kind of judge and justice. It needs two kinds. First of all, it needs justice for the bad, Ahab and Jezebel. Clearly, they are the perpetrators of evil in this passage. In fact, the author of 1 Kings goes on to say in the passage that Ahab was the worst of the worst. And it's sort of even hard to figure out which of those two was worse than the other. And then on the other hand, not only do we need justice for the bad, we need justice for the good. Now, Naboth, Naboth wasn't perfect. Naboth wasn't good in the sense that God is good. But Naboth was innocent of the evil portrayed in this passage. Naboth, I would propose to you, was justified or saved because he appealed to the Lord his God when he defied the king and would retain his inheritance, the inheritance that was his. It was his trust in God that enabled him to do that. But all he got, it seems, was injustice. So what is it that's going to bring these kinds of justice? Who is it that's going to bring these kinds of justice together? I don't think it's a stretch to say that we live in a world similar to that world. It doesn't take us long to look around and see a lot of injustices in a lot of places. And so we need to really consider the gravity and, if you would, in the end, the great glory of this particular text. So specifically, let's begin in seeing what we can learn from faithful Naboth. And I would propose what we should learn from faithful Naboth is that Christians must always protect their inheritance. They must always defend their inheritance. And this morning, if you trust Christ, you have a glorious inheritance 
Remember how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is ours through the gospel of Christ. And so Naboth would say to us, we should guard our inheritance, first of all, because it is from our king. He knew that the land that he was living on was given to the people of Israel, then ultimately to him by God the king who delivered them out of Egypt and gave them the land and then apportioned the land among the tribes and among the people and who would say, no ancient boundary stone should be moved. This land is the inheritance that I have given you. It is from the king. You have no other king to rule over you. And first and foremost, obey me. And of course, that was the whole problem with the 12 northern tribes. The whole nation of Israel didn't obey God. They wanted another king. They wanted to do it their own way. But in this instance, under great pressure, Naboth guards his inheritance because he knew it was from his king. So that's the first reason we should guard the inheritance we have because it's from our king, the Lord God Almighty. The second reason we should guard our inheritance is because it is for us and for our children. In Genesis chapter 17, as the covenant is affirmed, if you would, with Abraham, God says to Abraham, this promise, and it included the land, he said, this promise is for you and for your children. And then when the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost, the audience says, what should we do? And Peter's response to them is to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, this promise, this promise of the gospel, this inheritance of forgiveness and eternal life is for you and for your children. Two reasons we should be committed to guard the treasure of the inheritance that we have in our faith. It's from God, it's for us, and it's for our children. Now think of it in, per in terms of contrast. On one hand, we have Naboth who wasn't going to sell his inheritance for anything. He would hold tightly to it. On the other hand, we have the picture of Ahab who sold himself completely to evil. He was into it all the way. There was nothing he wouldn't do except worship the God, the real king of Israel. And it's really, I think, important for us to just lay hold of how much the world would want us to let go of our inheritance. Remember Esau? He had the inheritance of being born into the family of the patriarchs, yet because he was hungry because of his appetites, he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, a simple bowl of soup to satisfy his hunger. And I would propose to you that the world is continuously offering us another bowl of soup. 
Oh, it would be better if you were richer, if you were more successful, if you had a bigger house, if your reputation was this, and you had this degree, and you had that degree. And if you would come over and cross the fence, you would find that the grass is always greener over there. And the fact of the matter is the grass is not greener over there. And that we should never be tempted, if you would, to trade our birthright for a bowl of soup. Okay, so how do we do that? Practically, How do we do that in real time? First of all, all the, el- all the officers of this church, the deacons, the elders, the teaching elders, and the ruling elders, are bound by oath to submit to the scripture, to support the confession of faith, and obey the great commission. They take vows to do that, and if they don't do that, then they are liable for discipline, and that discipline can cause them to lose their office, or to be excommunicated. It's guarded, first of all, by sacred oaths. So how we guard that, our inheritance for our descendants. Every time we administer covenant baptism here, David reminds you, this is a sign and a seal of the promises contained in the covenant for us and for our children. And he asks the parents questions about their faith about their intentions, to surround this child, if you would, with covenant instruction and love. He asked us if we would do the same, that in the environment of the covenant community, the child is going to grow up and know and hear the gospel. And if that child, in his life, meets the terms of the covenant, which are not other than to come to Christ in faith, If that child meets the terms of that covenant, then that child is heir of the full inheritance of that covenant, the inheritance of a heaven, of a treasure that is kept for us that will not perish, spoil, or fade. And we are charged to guard that, not only for ourselves, but for our descendants. Now, what parent or what grandparent doesn't want their child or their grandchild to come to know Christ? I mean, I have grandchildren. Many of you have children and grandchildren. That's our desire. And you know, not all of them have come to where we want them to come. But does that change God's promise to be our God and the guard of our children after us? No, it doesn't change the promise. It might challenge our faith. But we believe the God who has promised is faithful. And so over and over again we pray, we love, we share, and we witness because we believe that the God of the covenant is a faithful God. And we will trust him with our lives and the lives of our descendants forever. And so it is our duty to protect our inheritance, the inheritance that we have in the gospel. And so, as it is in this narrative, so it is in our lives. God sees all the evil of all of us all the time. When Elijah went to Ahab, he was fully informed because God told him what was being done. Because he knew what was being done, he saw what was being done. And as you Watch that evil unfold. I mean, this was something Ahab and Jezebel did together because she wrote letters in his name. Then he gave him his seal 
She put his seal on those letters. It was all official. It was all going to be carried out, quote unquote, with the blessing of legality. And as we think of that and how nefarious that was, and we go back to David and his dealing with Uriah and everything that he did to make sure that Uriah was eliminated and the threat to him and gossip was gone. Doesn't it hit you that our hearts have a huge capability for evil? Don't you think of ways you can get even? Don't you think of ways of how you can have personal vengeance? Maybe it's even with your own spouse or a relative or a friend. How you can have that next victory. And maybe it's not as heinous and as bloodthirsty as these we've seen with David and with Ahab and with Jezebel. But nonetheless, even as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the intentions of our heart translate in the eyes of God to the reality of what we would do. And so we understand that when we live, we live under the sight of a God who knows our hearts, our thoughts, and our actions, and every one of us is under his jurisdiction. He says to Elijah, you go to the king because I'm your king and his king, and you tell him what his king is going to say. Elijah knew who was in charge. And no matter what's going on in our nation, wherever you might think you see corruption or malfeasance, the king is still the king there. His purposes will be fulfilled everywhere, in your life and in the life of every Christian and in the life of his church. We, we live in what you might call the age of surveillance. Dozens and dozens or even hundreds and hundreds of satellites are circling the earth. We've got GPS everywhere on our watches in our cars. And Alexa's supposed to be listening. Our phones are supposed to be recording. And everything is supposed to be heard. And that there's nothing that is, is going on that is not, if you would, in the view of somebody, whether it's a, a doorbell camera, camera or a security camera in the store that you are going to. And so the application of this is really when it comes to the day when we have to give account ourselves, the charge sheet is going to be full and it's going to be accurate. There's not going to be any disputes, no redactions, no negotiation, no, edit, no edits whatsoever. There is going to be everything that we have thought said or done that has broken God's law. Now, I do not know about you, but I do know about me. If God were to search my heart now and lay that out before me now, I would be terrified because I know what I have thought. I know what I have done. I know that I am guilty. And so the question comes, on that day, who are we going to face? Who are we going to face? And that's where the gem is in this text. In the latter part of the text, we see Ahab repenting. And aren't you sort of immediately saying, well, that's, was that sincere repentance? 
Was, was that a, a, enough repentance? Was, was he just faking it? Could, how could God do that after all that he has done? I mean, if you didn't think that, you're totally different than me. How is that possible after the heinous betrayal that he perpetrated against Naboth? And what I want to say to you this morning is that the judge that we're going to face on that day is the Lord Jesus himself, the one who Naboth believed in. In John chapter 5, John tells us that the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so, when we're front confronted as Elijah confronted Ahab, it's really a call to repentance. And along with a call to repentance, there is embedded in that call to repentance, if you would, an offer of mercy, if you would, of triumphant mercy. I would go as far as to say that what Ahab brought and his repentance must have been real to some degree. God didn't overlook it. We might overlook it. We might dismiss it. We might say it couldn't be real. But God saw the reality of it. And in the New Testament says, a mustard seed of faith is capable of moving mountains and transplanting a mulberry tree from the land into the sea. And how can that be? How can our judge act like that? Let me remind you that Jesus, like Naboth, was betrayed by bad characters, by false witnesses. A sham trial. And he was taken outside the city and wasn't stoned and was crucified. And as he looked down on the perpetrators of what had happened to him, the hierarchy of the Jewish church, the mob, the soldiers, as he looked down on them, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I would propose to you, a lot of times when we're sinning, we don't know what we're doing. We don't really have a grip on the gravity of what we're doing when we offend Almighty God. We trivialize it. No big thing, little white lie. Uh, it's, it's, you would, a picadillo. It's, it's not a, yes it is. We don't get it, but God gets it. And while the blood of Abel may cry out for justice, the blood of Zechariah may cry out for justice, the blood of Naboth may cry out for justice. The blood, of just, the blood of Jesus says, justice has been satisfied. The penalty has been paid. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy, triumphant mercy. Now think about this. What is the answer to the question? Are we a bad guy or a good guy? Now, I don't think any of you I know are as bad as Ahab or Jezebel. We could use that argument, well, I'm not as bad as they are. But an examination of our heart says, 
were in the same category. But at the same time, how about the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul are, are you as good as he is? Were you as sanctified as he was? I don't think so. So I, I really can't use that argument because Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice the tense, he says, of whom I am the worst. After all of his ministry, all that he suffered for the gospel, all that he had done to plant churches, he said, of sinners I am the worst. He had the perspective that he was a bad guy, that Jesus Christ dies for the bad guys. See, what is a Christian but a forgiven sinner? What is a Christian but a pardoned criminal? Christ has died for those. And he says, all that come to me, I will accept. And everybody that comes to me with even the mustard seed of faith and repentance will receive triumphant mercy. And the reason we don't come to Christ is not because he won't accept it. It's because we're hesitant. We don't think we're in that category of bad guys. We don't think mercy will come quickly. And the message of this text in the midst of all of its darkness is the shining spotlight of the mercy, the triumphant mercy of God in Christ. God, you see, is not, if you would, slow in keeping his promise. But instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's desire for every person in this congregation this morning is to come to Christ, to come to repentance, and to know and to receive triumphant mercy and to have as a personal inheritance that treasure that's kept in heaven for us that will not perish, spoil or fade. Do not delay. Bring your mustard seed of faith and repentance and know the bountiful harvest and the treasure of triumphant mercy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, let our ears hear the call to come to Christ, the promise of mercy that triumphs over judgment. Oh Lord, help me to be ever repentant, always coming to Christ, never delaying, knowing that your mercy, your mercy in Christ, and will triumph over all my sin. I ask and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.